Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Giese, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. It's another Friday edition of the podcast. I'll be speaking with Bill Meltzer who covers the Philadelphia Flyers for NHL.com. We'll discuss the status of former Union Hockey standout Shane Gossespierre, who was placed on waivers by the Flyers on Tuesday. And I'll speak with Minnesota Duluth men's hockey radio play-by-play announcer Bruce Siski about last Saturday's epic five-overtime game against North Dakota in the NCAA men's hockey tournament Midwest Regional Final. My first guest will be calling his 13th Final Four for Westwood One this weekend. You can also catch him on Big Ten Network calling college basketball. And he just completed his first full season on Fox Sports' NFL coverage. Please welcome back to the podcast, Kevin Kugler. Kevin, how are you? I'm great, Ken. How are you? Great to be back on with you. I appreciate you coming on. Now you're busy out there in Indianapolis with the uh, uh, NCAA basketball tournament, so I do appreciate a few minutes. So what has life been like calling games in a bubble? It is. Uh, it's an interesting. It's an interesting few weeks, really. Um, I have not uh, done a whole lot of exciting things other than call basketball games, but I'm happy to have the tournament. You know, we missed it last year, obviously, and uh, at this time last year, we were sitting at home wishing we were watching NCAA basketball, wishing we were watching the Final Four. So the fact that we are going to have one this year and that we've had a tournament and it's been a fun one so far is is fantastic. And uh, any minor differences that we notice um, are kind of pale in comparison to what happened last year. So I'm, I'm pleased that we've got the tournament. I'm pleased that it's here. And it's been a lot of fun. We've had some terrific games, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to the Final Four. Yeah, you've been—you guys have not been on the court uh, calling the games. You've been up in the, uh, the, I guess, essentially the press box. How different has that been? It's different. You know, there are times during the course of the regular season, even in pre-pandemic times, where the radio location for national radio, because we drop in and drop out, would be a little bit different than it would be for television for all the games I've done on TV for Fox and for Big Ten. So. And, and during the Final Four and the NCAA tournament, normally we are on the floor with national radio just across the half-court divider from where television is. So it's been a little bit different, but you know what? You make the best of it. You call the game, and, and look, everybody's dealing with weird things during this pandemic, and whether we are on the court or off the court, it doesn't matter any to any two who's listening to this broadcast. They just want to know where the ball is, what the score is, what's going on in the game, and that's my job to provide it. So happy to do it, and wherever we have to sit, we'll get it done. That's right. Well, we got through this tournament with just one team, uh, Virginia Commonwealth, having to leave the tournament because of the uh, COVID issues, and hopefully what we won't have any issues this weekend. So can it be considered a, a success that just one team got bounced because of COVID? I think it can, yeah, and I feel terrible for the kids at VCU. I mean, they... they Everybody who is in this tournament or anybody who played college athletics at all this year has really gone through a lot. Most of these college basketball teams either came back in June or July, maybe some in August, and they tested every day. And they've been in a bubble more or less since that time. 
these freshmen haven't met anyone else on campus other than guys on their team and maybe some of the other student athletes that they're in the bubble with on their campus. And then they come here and for VCU, I feel terrible. They go through the whole year and have the COVID issues when it gets here, but for everybody else, you know, knock on wood, we're going to be able to keep everybody clean through next Monday when we crown a national champion here in Indianapolis. And and I give a, a lot of credit to the kids, the coaches, all of these medical professionals that have been involved in this, this has not been an easy undertaking. This has been kind of a grind for these kids over the course of the year, for these coaches. It's been something that there is no playbook for. You can't look in the library. You can't go to your coaching brethren and say, hey, how do you deal with this? Because nobody has ever had to deal with this before from a coaching or playing standpoint. And I give a lot of credit to those teams that have been able to navigate this successfully to get to this point so that, these kids have a memory. And I'm, I'm telling you, if you've played in this tournament, if you've been a part of this tournament, you're never going to forget what's happened this year. This is one that you will remember, regardless of win or lose, for the rest of your life. So what do you think of this year's tournament? We've, you know, we've had some incredible games and upsets. I mean, Oral Roberts, uh, they were really the, one of the you know, good stories of this tournament. I think what we saw partly, Ken, is that we didn't really have a great feel for how teams were outside of their conference. We had such a limited non-conference slate this year that we really didn't get the chance to gauge teams against other teams outside of their own league for the majority of this college basketball season. So we got into watching the Big Ten, for example, and the Big Ten had a fantastic regular season. Clearly in the regular season, this looked like the best conference. And then whatever reason, matchup, stage, whatever, they didn't fare well in the NCAA tournament. Pac-12, nobody talked about them for most of the year. Pac-12 had a tremendous tournament when they got to Indianapolis. So I just don't know that we had a great feel during the course of this year for what college basketball really was. And the tournament has kind of given us some of those great stories that it always does. And now we get the chance to tell some even better stories in this Final Four. The story of Houston and Kelvin Sampson bringing a team to Indy and bringing a team to the Final Four. And maybe the chance to see our first undefeated national champion since 1976 and Indiana in the state of Indiana with the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Yeah, let's talk about that uh, game. UCLA, you know, years ago they were what the the dominant program when you know when i was growing up in the in the 70s um gonzaga 30-0 heading into this game we saw what ucla did against michigan tuesday night and mucked it up uh, to use a hockey term uh 51-49 what's going to be the key to for gonzaga to avoid you know getting into that, that kind of game against ucla well, I, I think it's a lot harder to muck it up against Gonzaga because they have so much diversity of talent and can hurt you in so many ways. And they have exceptional passers, one through five. It's a little harder to muck it up when somebody can reverse the ball as well as Gonzaga does. And I, and I think that's the challenge for UCLA. That's the style they're going to have to play with because, look, Mick Cronin has said it. They lost three players over the course of the season, whether at the beginning, middle, or end, that would have been big contributors and huge factors for this team on this year. And they're not here now. And he has said he never thought the team as constituted was a Final Four team, yet here they are. But you're going against a Gonzaga team that, to me, that's the best team I've seen in this tournament maybe in three years. I mean, they are a fantastic basketball team. They move the ball so well. They have scorers at almost every position. They're not a deep team, but they don't need to be because their top seven 
are as good as anybody in college basketball. Mark Few's program is really clicking. It's going to be a tough, tough task for UCLA. It doesn't mean it can't be done because who thought UCLA was going to go first four to final four like VCU did several years ago when this tournament started? They didn't have the look of a tournament team at all, losing four straight at the end of the regular season. But here they are. They're in the final four. They've earned their spot, and they've earned their chance to knock off Gonzaga. We'll see if they can get it done. I think it's a much tougher task to muck it up against a team like Gonzaga than it was, for example, Michigan in their in their Elite Eight matchup. And watching Gonzaga, I mean, this is a team that you know, doesn't run the shot clock down. They don't wait till five seconds left to take a shot. They'll take a shot when there's 15, 20 seconds left on, on the shot clock, which I think is great. I mean, they're, that they're, they're keeping the offense moving, and I, I like that. They're the best two-point shooting team in the nation, which means they can get inside the arc and hit from almost anywhere. Drew Timmy leads the way in that regard. They score 92 points per game, the most in Division One college hoops, men or women. They're the highest scoring team in Division One college hoops, and that encompasses both the men's side and the women's side. They share the basketball at a rate almost unheard of in the men's Division One college basketball at 19 assists per game. They're shooting over 55% from the floor going into the game last night. They score a ton of points in the paint 14 times this year. They've had 50 games or 50 points in the paint. It's crazy how good they are at getting the ball inside against almost any defense. People will say, well, but they haven't done this, they haven't done that. Gonzaga has played anybody they could possibly play. They're going to have the chance to win a national championship if they can move the ball at the same rate that they have against UCLA, and I think they can. Now, the matchup with Baylor is interesting. If Baylor can get through Houston, I think that's the one that, uh, you know, selfishly everybody wants to see because that's kind of been the one that everybody was talking about during the course of the regular season. Baylor is dynamic. Baylor has really good matchups with Gonzaga, but that's down the road. Baylor's got to figure out Houston first, and I'm telling you that I've seen Houston twice in this tournament. That's not going to be an easy task. Yeah, let's talk about that matchup. What do you like about it? Uh, I like the defense of Houston and the confidence that they play with because they know that the only way they win games is by defending. And so it has to be a team effort. They've got a tough, tough point guard in Dejan Giroux who's playing hurt, but he's navigating this team. They have a legitimate superstar in Quentin Grimes, a superstar that probably few people have heard of, but he's a prolific scorer, used to be at Kansas, put his name in for the NBA draft. Bill Self thought he was going to be taken or go in the NBA. He opted to come back. Well, by the time he came back, Bill Self didn't have a spot for him at Kansas. They'd already filled the spot thinking he was going to stay in the NBA. So Bill Self helped him find a new spot in Houston, back near home. That was a very amicable split with Kansas. Quentin Grimes has really fallen in love with what Kelvin Sampson is doing. He's the most prolific scorer on this team. But they have a nice blend of players who defend. They throw it up off the rim and they go get it. They're one of the best offensive rebounding teams in college basketball. It's an interesting matchup. And if Baylor is cold from three, and they'll shoot a ton because they're the best three-point shooting team in the field, they're going to shoot a ton of threes. And they do not rebound it particularly well. They were something like 278th in the college basketball ranks out of 340 teams in defensive rebounding. If they can't rebound and if they're cold from three, believe me, Houston has every chance to win this game because they rebound well and they defend very well all the way out to the arc. Yeah, Baylor and Gonzaga were supposed to play in the regular season. That game got yep. canceled because of the COVID. So maybe Monday night we'll see it. 
Uh, I, and you know what? Maybe we will. And I think it's a really intriguing matchup if we do because both of the, the neither team is going to be afraid to go up and down the floor. Baylor scores 84 points per game. No problem scoring the basketball for the Baylor Bears. Davion Mitchell is a tremendous defensive player, and we've seen what he can do on the offensive side as well. I, I love the matchup, but... I hope people don't overlook Houston. I know Scott Drew and the Baylor Bears won't, but as far as fans go, we all kind of peek ahead like, ooh, maybe Baylor-Gonzaga finally happens in this national championship game. Houston can, to go back to the hockey term, muck it up again with the Baylor Bears. We're going to be working the games uh, with P.J. Carlissimo and Jim Jackson this weekend. Unfortunately, there's going to be a void in the booth. Uh, John Thompson, the former legendary Georgetown coach, uh, who you worked with since you started calling the Final Four, uh, died last August 30th at the age of 78. What was he like, uh, Kevin, and how much has he missed? Um, well, I'll answer the second part first because he's been on my mind a lot, especially these last few weeks. It, there's a, there's definitely a void. He would have loved being in the same spot. I don't know how much he'd have loved it in a pandemic where you can't really see everybody, but to have everybody in the same spot, all the coaches, all the players – he would have really enjoyed that to just be surrounded by basketball because that was his life. He loved basketball and he loved the chance to be around basketball. So the fact that he gets the chance would have gotten the chance to do that makes me sad that he didn't get here. Um, from a selfish standpoint, I miss him. Uh, I miss working with him. I miss his knowledge. Uh, I miss conversations with him off the air. He was a funny man that. No one really, you know, he had a very good sense of humor, and he, and I loved his laugh. Um, I'll miss him in our meetings. I'll miss him on the air. Uh, it, there's there's just a lot of, there's a big void left in college basketball without him, but for our broadcast, and, and look, I love P.J. Carlissimo, and I love Jim Jackson. These are two great friends, and they're two great colleagues, but not having Coach Thompson with us is is a, is a major, major loss, and I, I promise he is missed in a significant way on our broadcasts. What do you think he would have said uh, had he seen Patrick Ewing win the Big East tournament uh, uh, last month? Oh, I, I was I was so sad that he didn't get to see it because he would have he would have been so proud. He would have been so proud because he loved Patrick and he loved Georgetown basketball, and he would have been so proud to see that team put it together like that for that run at Madison Square Garden. Most likely he would have been there calling the games for us for Westwood One because he'd been at the Big East Tournament for many, many years calling our games. And I can't imagine he would have – I don't know if he he would have gotten emotional. I have no doubt in my mind he would have gotten emotional watching what that Georgetown team was able to do. I know he was smiling down on them, but I sure wish I could have been there with him to see his reaction in person when that happened. He would have been – he would have been – Proud Papa, to be sure. Well, Jim Gray is hosting the coverage, and he will be joined by uh, Bill Walton. So, Kevin, whose job is it to keep uh, Bill Walton in check? <laughs> we we leave that up to Jim Gray. They'll do pre-half and post-game hits uh, during our broadcast, and that will be, with UCLA here, this will be a unique uh, experience. And it always is with Bill. There's no question it's always a unique experience. And we were wondering just how many Pac-12 teams would get through because Bill Walton, of course, is – uh, very enamored with the Pac-12 conference. If you've listened to any broadcast Bill's ever done, you know how he feels about the Conference of Champions. And But, of course, his passion really resides with his alma mater. And the fact that they're here now as the Cinderella story in the Final Four, 
I, I can't imagine. We may not be able to broadcast once he comes on the air because he may just he may just consume the airwaves. There may be nothing left when he's done. And but it'll be a hoot. I mean, you you will. I promise people will laugh. They will have a great time as you always do with Bill because he will be in rare form with his alma mater in the Final Four. He's a national treasure, no doubt about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kevin, I appreciate a few minutes of talking uh, NCAA basketball. I know you're busy getting ready for the games, and have fun this weekend. We'll catch you on the Westwood One. Sounds good. Thank you, Ken. I appreciate you having me on. All right, that's Kevin Kugler. Coming up, the Philadelphia Flyers wage former Union College hockey standout Shane Gossespierre. What's next for Gossespierre? I'll ask Bill Meltzer of NHL.com next on the Parting Shots podcast. The NASCAR season is here, and it's time to play the Daily Gazette's Auto Racing Contest. Go to dailygazette.com to sign up and play. Predict the order of finish of each race via your auto racing account. The fan with the most correct points for the race will win a $50 grocery card and have their name mentioned on the Party Shots podcast and printed in Friday's Daily Gazette. The fan with the most overall points at the end of the season wins a $250 grocery card. You can also win a $75 Visa gift card provided by Second Street if you're the weekly national winner. If you are the overall national winner, you will win a trip for two to the 2022 Daytona 500. So go to dailygazette.com, sign up, and play today. The Daily Gazette Auto Racing Contest is run by the Daily Gazette Advertising Department and not associated with the Daily Gazette Sports Department. Hi, this is Daily Gazette sports editor Michael Kelly. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette associate sports editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. In a stunning move Tuesday, the Philadelphia Flyers placed defenseman and former Union College hockey st- uh, standout Shane Gossesbear on waivers. He went unclaimed by the 12 noon Wednesday deadline. And to talk about that situation is NHL.com Flyers beat writer Bill Meltzer. Bill, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Ken. Always a pleasure. So what's what's going on with the, this situation with Shane? I mean, it just seems like it came out of nowhere. Yeah, um, you know, it, I, I think Shane has had, I, I think, for the most part, a pretty good season this year. So some ups and downs. He went through a pretty rough patch defensively for about eight games there. Um, and lately he's been scoring again. Um, but, I mean, I, I think there might have been a, you know, a, a push to – to trade him before the season or early in the season, um, you know, I, I think I think there's a lot of layers of things going on because the Flyers as a team have just underachieved so far this season. I think there's no other way to put it than that, um, you know. And uh, I think also the team is looking for ways to potentially open up some cap space. You know, I, I think when a player goes onto waivers and goes unclaimed, I think sometimes people jump to the assumption that oh, well, nobody wants the player. And that's really not necessarily the case. You know, with, with, in Shane's case, uh, his cap hit of $4.5 billion and the fact that that's two years of term to run after the season, you know, with, the, with a flat cap across the NHL and teams in general just not looking to take on salary, you know, it, it, made, it made it a little hard for a team that might have a use for Shane to claim him. I think the Flyers kind of banked on that, and... You know, they, they, a little bit of a gamble, but I mean, they, he cleared today, and now you know now they have some options of, of what they can do. Yes, yeah, so as, as we talk here on Wednesday, the Flyers are scheduled to play the Buffalo Sabers uh, Wednesday night. 
And you uh, said to me before we came on that you know, you're going to be talking with uh, Elaine Vigneault beforehand. It looks like Shane could play Wednesday against Buffalo. Hey, what What do you think is what does Elaine like Shane? Or what's the deal with with between those two? Do they, what's their relationship like? Well, uh, you know, and not being in the we were in the locker room last season until the pause this year. Uh, this year, no media has locker room access, so we're limited to you know like video conferences. I mean, I I, I think that they have an okay relationship. I don't I don't think that's the issue necessarily. Uh, although Shane, you know, Shane is a guy who speaks his mind. Um, there have been a couple of times recently where, you know, AV has said one thing and, and Shane has uh, kind of spoken his mind and not necessarily, you know, echoing what uh, Elaine has said. So, you know, I, I, I don't think you wave a player over that. I don't, I don't think it's that kind of situation. But I do think that, um, you know, I, I, I do think that I think, I think there are layers to it, you know. I mean, Shane, again, you know, he, I think for the most part he's had a good season this year. Um, I, I think, however, that, uh, you know, with, with expansion draft coming up and with Shane Caput being what it is, you know, um, I, I think some of that hastened it. Elaine um, Vigneault had talked about how, well, it gives flexibility on you know, a 23-man roster. That, that's a partial explanation, I would say. I, I think that's a piece of it. But there, there are other players that were candidates to be waived, if that's what you're looking for. You know, for example, um, Eric Gustafson is only signed through this season. He makes $3 million, $3 million this year. He's not part of the long-term future. So you're only looking for the, the roster flexibility. You know, you have other guys you could waive. And, and certainly with uh, Shane having been on the top pairing with Ivan Provorov and having played well, I think, for the first, I'd say, six weeks that he was back or, you know, at least the first month that he was back, um, I don't. I don't think that would have happened a little earlier in the season. Um, I, I think also, you know, I, I think one layer of it is the cap flexibility. I mean, if, if a team would have claimed them, then that's four four point five billion of cap space. Um, now with him clearing, the Flyers could, if they if they choose to do it, they can move him back and forth, um, so he could be like in the NHL roster on game nights, and then on um, on non game nights. Um, he could be moved to the taxi squad. That's a little bit of cap savings on those days. So that's uh, so there's there's a you know there's a capology piece to it also. Uh, and of course, had it, had it been claimed, the whole thing would have come off the cap. Um, I, I do think, however, that it speaks to that, uh, and not not really a surprise that uh, Shane will probably not be protected in the expansion draft. Um, you know whether whether he gets claimed or not, we'll see. You know, it's certainly motivation for the player. Um, I also think that when you when you wave a player who's been in an organization in Shane's case since 2012, I, I think it has a little bit of a effect on the roster. You know, you I mean, the Flyers are a team that haven't had a lot of trades and haven't had a, you know, they've had a, they've had a quite a bit of stability, I think, overall. So I, I think it also it also um, although I don't think message sending was the primary motivation. I think it's a layer to it. I think it's a secondary consideration to it, along with the expansion draft. So it's, uh, you know, so I, I think I think there's a lot of pieces to this. Uh, I think the upshot is is that uh, you know Shane will be a flyer the rest of the season. I don't think suddenly you're going to have a trade materialize, and Shane is Shane's playing for his future. What? What? What happened with Shane? I mean, obviously. Um... Rookie year, 2016-17, had an outstanding year. 
runner-up in the Rookie of the Year uh, of balancing. But since then, it's been just so inconsistent. What happened? Well, King um, had some injury issues. Um, his second, you know, his second season in the league was definitely a tough one for him. Um, third season, I thought was the best year of his career. He didn't have as many goals as he did his rookie year, but I, I thought that he was a better overall hockey player. Um, he even spent a significant part of the season, the second half of the season, uh, on the on the top pairing with uh, with Ivan Provorov. So, I mean, I, I thought that he looked like he kind of broken through. And then he's had a, a couple of rough seasons since that time. Um, injuries have been one factor. He's had, he's had some knee issues. He's, uh, you know, and, and some inconsistency in his play. And I think, you know, I think with Shane also is that uh, a lot of his confidence, and Shane himself has said it, when he's a confident player, you know, he, he's able to contribute offensively and his, his two-way um, confidence level, you know, his all-around game at least, uh, stems from being effective offensively. And last year he wasn't really able to, to produce much offensively, in part because a big part of Shane's game is his, his lateral mobility, you know, and um, that was lacking a lot of the last season. His skating was really lacking a year ago. So, you know, this season he, he felt a lot better, and I think, I think he's played better for the most part, too, with, with them up and down. I mean, there's a stretch there. He was, I think, about out three straight games for seemed like no apparent reason. Uh, you know, well, looking back, why why do you think Vino uh, kept him out for three straight, especially when they were well, getting, was, getting hammered? Well, he had a he had a lot of company in this, but I mean, Shane was minus ten in eight games. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the pairing with Provorov was broken up because Shane, in particular, was struggling. Not that Provorov couldn't have gotten better. And, you know, that, that it was entirely on Shane. But, you know, but uh, Shane went through a real rough defensive patch. He was scoring it. It's funny because the points were starting to come. But they, they sat him They sat him because he was struggling a bit defensively. And then they, you know, they, they went. I, I could, you know, I, I could see certainly the one game. Um, you know, three games. Three games was, was a pretty long stretch to sit, particularly because, you know, I don't think either Nate Pross or, or Gustafson were particularly playing well in those games. And the, the last game was a really rough game for that bear. That's what got chained back in the lineup. Um, you know, uh, having, having, having ghosts on the third pair with, um, he's been on, he's been with uh, Samuel Moran for a couple games because they've been in the organization together in 2013 when, uh, when Big Sam was drafted. And I, I think they've had a couple of good games the last couple of games. But in terms of why he was removed from the lineup, I think, you know, Shane along with many other players, because Shane was not the only player. You know, I think, Bill Myers was really struggling. Uh, Travis Sandheim was really struggling. Provorov had some inconsistency in his game. So, you know, I don't, I don't think it's, uh, it's entirely fair to say it was just Shane, but he, he was one of the guys that was struggling for a while there. And you mentioned him speaking. Yeah, I think he was defending Carter Hart recently with uh, you know, Carter's and Hart's been struggling this year, and uh, Shane came out in defense of him. Uh, what is that? What? what yeah, I know you say you're not in the locker room, but do you think that was perceived as uh, good by Shane speaking up for Carter? I, I think I think within the room, you know, I it was, um, you know, I I, I think that AD's comments, you know, and not inside his head. But the one thing with Carter was always that you know, always understood him to be a very hardworking hockey player. So when he was talking about that, he has to, to practice, work harder, and work work better. I, I, maybe he was going for work smarter. I don't know, but um, you know. But I, I, I think that yeah, 
What do you think Shane has to do to really improve his play and just be more consistent? Honestly, I think he's been on the right track the last couple of games. Um, you know, with Shane, when he's effective, he has, he has an active stick, particularly in the neutral zone. He breaks up a lot of plays before they even get into the defensive zone. Shane is never going to be a, a tiger on the boards or a, a, you know, a crease clear near the net. That's not his strength. But as long as Shane plays adequately and uses his stick effectively, moves the puck and contributes on the power play, because a lot, a lot of Shane's value does come from the offense that he creates and you know, uh, the offense has been really coming around. It's, it's one, one area of his game that I think has really kind of clicked in. I, I think I think he can stay in the lineup. And, you know, I, I think that um, if, he, if he closes the season well, um, even if, you know, even if he's not a flyer come next season, he'll still, he'll still be in somebody's starting six. Again, he's, you know, he's got two years to go in his contract here. He's, uh, he's not just playing, you know, he's not just playing for a job here. You're also auditioning for, you know, well, it'll be, it'll be 31 other teams. Next yeah. season, so you know, I, I think I think there's a lot to play for for him. Well, Bill, where can uh, people find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at Bill Meltzer um, uh, on Twitter. I'm at uh, PhiladelphiaFlyers.com as uh, the team writer. Um, I'm the Philadelphia Flyers Alumni Association uh, content manager. So FlyersAlumni.net is the alumni's official page, and you can find me at HockeyBuzz.com. Busy man. I know I see a lot of those pictures of the Alumni Association, and once in a while, uh, you know, people know I'm a big Flyers fan. My late father uh, was involved with the fan club, and once in a while, I see a picture of him pop up in uh, those uh, alumni pictures. Yeah, those, those, those are really cool. Like a lot of those are carnival at the Flyers Wives Carnival. The pictures of your dad there. Yeah. So, Bill, appreciate a few minutes. Uh, we'll talk uh, hopefully uh, once uh, if the Flyers get going and. Get in the playoffs and do some making run. We'll talk again soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. All right, All right that's Bill Meltzer. Uh, coming up, I'll speak to Minnesota Duluth men's hockey play-by-play announcer Bruce Siski about last Saturday's epic five-overtime game against North Dakota in the NCAA men's hockey tournament West Regional Final. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast. Sign up for the weekly Daily Gazette Sports Newsletter. The newsletter features updates on the local sports scene from our staff writers, debate on topics local and national, and reveals the latest guests for the Parting Shots podcast. The newsletter is free. To sign up, head to dailygazette.com. Hi, I'm Kaylin Brown, Managing Editor of the Daily Gazette. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Held in by Clevin, but taken away. Here comes Milmock. He's got Biondi with him, two on two. Milmock, a shot, he scores! Luke Milmock and the Bulldogs have won the game! They are going to the NCAA! Frozen four! That's Bruce Siski's call on KDAL of Luke Milmock's goal at 2.13 on the fifth overtime giving Minnesota Duluth a dramatic 3-2 victory over North Dakota in the NCAA Men's Hockey Tournament Midwest Regional Final, ending the longest game in NCAA tournament history and sending the two-time defending national champion Bulldogs back to the Frozen Four for the fourth straight time. And please welcome Bruce Siski to the podcast. Bruce, uh, welcome, and we're taping this on a Monday. How are you feeling? <laughs> Can I feel... Uh... I still feel a little tired, to be honest with you. That was a, 
that was a long and very enjoyable at the end of the evening. Well, as a uh, two-time member of the Five Overtime Club, I welcome you to the club for the uh, first time. <laughs> I can know the feeling. And, of course, I covered the four-overtime game, which was the St. Lawrence-Boston University game. That was uh, the previous NCAA uh, hockey tournament's uh, longest game. So uh, I, I know the feeling of it. Just what was that night like? I mean, Minnesota Duluth up 2 nothing. North Dakota gets two goals late with the goaltender pulled, and then, then we're going to be there for a while. And of course, you don't know that. You know, yeah. it's you, you know, and, and I've, I've covered a couple of three overtime games, a couple of double overtime games. Uh, we had one in Worcester against Providence a few years ago in the first round of the tournament when double overtime. That was an epic game, but, but you never know when you're going to walk in the door and see that kind of a game. And so, yeah, they're up to nothing, and, and I'm, you feel like they've got a pretty good chance, but you can't discount North Dakota. They're a resilient group. They, they've shown that all year. I kept saying that on the air. So this game's not over. This team has come back before. You know, they're they're a team that, that has a lot of firepower. They get one, they can get a couple quickly. And sure enough, they got one, they got a second one quickly, and, and now you're in a meat grinder. They they got the push in, in the first part of that first overtime. And I, I thought UMD did a really good job of weathering the storm and you know they Exits have been an issue for this team. They did a better job in that area. When they had chances to get pucks out, they got pucks out. They relieved that pressure, and, and they started to push back, and, and it, it turned into a whale of a hockey game. And I told, I said that that is, you know, sometimes those five overtime, four overtime games can turn into a bit of a slog, and, and that one I never felt did. There was action. There was pace. And, and they, were, they were playing their guts out, and it, it was a lot of fun to watch. Of course, we saw a Minnesota Duluth goal in the overtime uh, get turned over on an offside. We saw a goaltending change, very unusual. First, let's talk about the uh, the goal that was not allowed. I mean, one minute you're the team celebrating, and next the next minute uh, they got to play on. Yeah, I guess it's it's kind of fitting with the things that this group's gone through over the years that that something like that would happen in, on this stage and in that moment. And I mean, it's the right call, right? It, it, it's offside. And you, you also hate it because we're all sitting there watching that BU St. Cloud game earlier in the day, and that was a more blatant offside, and they decided to let that go. And it's frustrating because, to me, offside should not be open to interpretation. And in this case, it's become clear both in the college and the NHL levels that offside is actually open to interpretation. And that's a, it's a part of this that if we're going to continue to review offsides, we've got to fix. But in this case, that call's right. I, I can't scream about that. And so you got to play on. I said it three or four times. you got to find a way to go get another one. And I didn't think it was going to take them another full game and almost game and a half to get that other one. But it, that, that's how it works sometimes. And like I said, it, it settled into an epic multiple overtime game, the, the kind of which we just don't see very often. And it stayed very cleanly played. And, they, they found a way in the end, Ken. They, 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 they got the fourth line out there, some fresh legs, and, and Luke Billamock would score two goals all year, or one goal all year, I should say, found a way to get a second. Yeah, we'll talk about that goal in a second. And then, of course, the goaltending change, um, uh, the starter, uh, Zach, uh, cramps up, and, the, uh, and then Ryan Fanti has to come in, and, and he faces six shots and stops them all. And then just uh, what, what about that turn of events? So you could cut it. Like, if you – 
I'm going to guess if I go back and watch, which I'm sure I will at some point, the, the full broadcast, you'll, there's going to be moments where you look at, at a shot of the goaltender and think he's not, he, he's battling. He, he's really battling to stay in this game. And, you know, I give kudos to Zach Stasekul because that's a big spot. And, and he got the start. Uh, he earned that start. He showed why he got that start. He was tremendous. You know, and, and it's it's hard to put your hand up and say, I need to come out of this game. I can't continue to do this. And he did. And, you know, Ryan Fanti actually talked to him today, and, and he said, you know what, you, you have to be ready. It doesn't matter where you are in the lineup. It doesn't matter what position you're in. If you're the backup goalie, your job is to be ready. And, and whether you took the warm-up five minutes ago or, in this case, five hours ago, your job's to be ready to go out there and play. And, and you know, Fanti was. And he said he, he said after the game he was probably more nervous sitting on the bench than he was when he got put into the game. But you could all, you know, he kind of conceded that you could see this coming to a certain extent that Zach was starting to battle it a little bit. And so that allowed him to start getting ready on the bench mentally and physically. So when it was time to go into the game, he wasn't maybe as cold as he would have been if Zach had pulled up lane with an injury out of the I mean, was it was it warm in the building that night, or what was it like? I mean, it, it was a, or it, well, no, it wasn't there. No. <laughs> you weren't there. Nope. Oh, you're nope. calling, calling the, uh, ah. <laughs> yeah, studio studio hockey, Ken. Nice. So I, I don't. I mean, it wasn't. It, it hasn't been unseasonably warm. So and there was only you know fourteen, fifteen hundred. I was there four years ago when it was packed and. It, I wouldn't say it was it was terribly warm in there then, so I can't imagine that it was you know horribly warm. But the reality is that, that you you're you're out there in this high intensity environment, and you're wearing all that equipment. You are you're sweating more than you can take in, and it gets to a point where in they, they, you know, North Dakota, Jordan Caligucci talked about guys getting IVs between overtimes and. and you always have to do that because you can't replenish. No beverage you drink is going to replenish the fluid you're sweating out playing in a game like that. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about, you know, the, the, you mentioned the fourth line coming in there to get to get that game-winning goal. I mean, Luke's shot, it was sort of, it was, I think it caught everybody by surprise because just the, the, it was a quick snap and it looked like it hit the, the maybe slightly the the puck hits uh, off the defenseman's skate and if, and, and fooled Adam Shield and uh, went through the five hole. I mean, how shocking was it to see Luke get that game when it goes? Usually, if you're going to get uh, somebody's going to get, get the game where it's going to be one of your top players. Well, yeah, and, and I think you know part of the story of this game is the the number of times and North Dakota played their four lines for pretty much the entirety of, of the overtimes. You know, we saw their you know Louis Jamernick and Harrison Blaisdell and Jackson Keene, if they weren't out there together, they were sprinkled in with other guys. And and I think that helped keep North Dakota a little fresher. You can start to see that in the third overtime. And I talked to Scott Sandelman today, and he, and he said, you know, we kind of made the decision to start sprinkling in guys from that fourth line. It was mainly Luke Lohai, who centers the fourth line. But then in the fourth overtime, we started to see more of Blake Biondi and Luke Milbach, who are the, the wings for low height. And we saw that line together a couple of times. And then they said they made the decision going into the fifth overtime, they're going to start giving those guys more regular shifts. And this, there's a benefit to that, right? And that's yeah. that, yes, they're, these are your fourth line guys, but those are fresh legs. 
And, you know, and, and Luke Milmock talked about, you know, staying mentally in the game. And, and Scott mentioned that too, that these guys stayed mentally in the game when they weren't playing. And so again, it's a matter of when your number's called, you'd be ready to go out there and do something and, and make an impact. And, and whether it be a physical play or a block shot, or in this case, <laughs> the game winning goal, a, a really a nice play that, that Luke made, you know, cuts to the middle, changes the angle. He uses Jacob Bernard Docker, one of the best defensemen of the country, as a screen. And, and I do think the shot caught Bernard Docker a little bit, but he, whether it did or didn't, he used the defenseman as a screen and got a puck through. And, you know, they teach you at this time of the year, especially you get these overtime situations, and, and there's no such thing as a bad shot on goal. And he, he got one there, and Shield, whether he was fooled or the shot got tipped there by uh, on the way by, he couldn't. He could not get that five hole closed in time. It trickled through, and he goes UMB to Pittsburgh. As I said at the open here, the, the fourth straight trip for Minnesota Duluth, uh, two-time defending champions. Is this been a more of a surprise? Because I me, mean, obviously, you look at Duluth's record, fifteen, ten, and two this year. Not, it's okay, but not what we expect out of uh, Minnesota Duluth. But I mean, is this a pleasant surprise for the team that that, that they're back in the Frozen Four? So I, I was talking to somebody about this today. I said, you know, you, you look at, you know, 2018 to me is still more of a surprise that that group, you know, that that was the group that barely got in the tournament. They had all the freshmen, you know, Brunovich and Sandberg and uh, Mikey Anderson, all freshman defensemen playing significant minutes and uh, a few freshmen up front. And Carson Kuhlman is out the Boston Bruins was the captain of that team and, and did such a good job of, of getting them ready to go when it mattered the most, and, and they found a way to, to get through the, the regional out in Sioux Falls and, you know, the comeback against Minnesota State and then the win over Air Force to go to the Frozen Four. I still think that team was probably more of a surprise than this one is. I think this one had the ability to get the experience. It was a matter of, of getting that blue line to come together a little bit, uh, be a little cleaner in their zone, and, and obviously helping out the goaltenders a little bit. And, 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 you know, up against a team like North Dakota, the firepower they have, Zach Stasco and Ryan Fancy were both fantastic on Saturday. And, and that's the reason why this team is here. They made the necessary improvements, and, and, and they played a great team game Saturday, and they earned their way to Pittsburgh. And, of course, the, the semifinal matchup is the rematch of the 2019 championship uh, against UMass. Uh, what do you expect out of that game? I know we were talking a week out here or so, but uh, that, that should be an interesting game. I will probably go back this week and, and watch UMass's regional games through my uh, ESPN app and, and get a better look at things and, and how things line up. But, but my initial impression is that this team, UMass, might they might be more dangerous than the one that we saw in 2019. I, I, I feel like there's a a little different mentality with this group. It's going to be interesting to, to uh, get a talk to Greg Carvel later on this week and see what he thinks. But uh, I, I do think they've got some firepower up front. Bill Lindbergh is playing tremendously well in goal, and, and he's going to be a tough out for anybody. So I, I think this is going to be a great game. I, I certainly I, I said this going into the tournament. You, you can bet against the champs if you'd like, but do it at your own risk. And, you know, UMD, you know, go back and, and listen to the press conference after Saturday's game and listen to what Luke Milmock said. He talked about, you know, and he's a freshman, and, and this was a weird year where there wasn't a lot of team bonding time, but he came in with the mentality of, of trying to help this team any way that he could. He talked about being just ecstatic to see his name in the lineup for the game against North Dakota, 
and he talked about how what it meant to him to score a goal like that and help these guys that these juniors and seniors that all they know is winning national championships to get them back to the Frozen Four. Yeah, the team that, that is the most together, Ken, you know this as well as anybody, a lot of times is the one that's going to win. It's not the one that's the most talented. It's not the one that's it's got the most goals going into the Frozen Four or the best goaltender. It's the one that's the most together. And despite everything that, that's, that's happened with these kids all over the country and not being able to be together as much and bond as much as they used to, the team that's the most together next weekend is going to win the national championship, whoever it is. What's in the water in Minnesota this season? The three of the four teams <laughs> from the frozen four, going to the frozen four from the state, and not not How crazy and not, is this? Not, 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 not not one of them is the Gophers. <laughs> if you'd have told me ten years ago that there'd be a frozen four where there's three Minnesota teams and none of them are the Gophers, I probably would have had you checked out. I, I don't know what I would have thought because you know Bemidji State was still. And I know they'd gone to the Frozen Four in 2009, that they were not a, a perennial threat to WCHA. Uh, you know, St. Cloud State was up and down still a little bit. Bob Motzka was still building what he built there. Uh, Minnesota State was, was basically an afterthought of a program at that point in time. So to think that we could put three teams in the Frozen Four and have none of them be the Gophers, was, it, it's just an incredible thing. And, you know, I got to tip the cap to Brett Larson. We, we know him pretty well up here. I keep pretty regular touch with him and he's one of my favorite people in college hockey. I'm thrilled that he got this team, St. Cloud State, to the Frozen Four. And Mike Hastings is tremendous as well in, in Mankato, the work that he's done down there. And I'm I'm very happy that he is finally now going to get recognized for the work that he's done on a national stage because what they've built in Mankato is really special. And uh, it, it's not lost on me either that there's a guy on that roster in Mankato who shares the last name with the head coach at UMB. Uh, there's no doubt that winning runs in that family a little bit. And uh, Ryan Sandlin had a really good weekend out Loveland tournament, the most outstanding player, and goals in both games for the overtime winner on Saturday. So it was a good weekend for the Sandlins. What do you think there would be a matchup between uh, father and son for the national championship? <laughs> <laughs> They were joking last night on the TV broadcast with Wendy, uh, Brian's mom and Scott's wife, because she was out in Loveland, and they had her on for a little bit. And They were joking with her. She had to get one of those jerseys that's got uh, half Minnesota State and half UMD. It's yeah. kind of sewn down the middle or whatever. So um, it'll be uh, – if that's the if that's the game, if that's the matchup next Saturday, I, I will tell you that uh, I'll be supremely excited for – I mean, I'll be supremely excited for whatever happens, but uh, I'll be thrilled if that's the matchup and, It'd be great to follow it and, and see what happens. and uh, Find out later maybe what kind of uh, little uh, side wager those two may have placed on the game. Yeah. Well, I, I covered Scott. Too. I know he was a defenseman in the Hershey Bears, and I, every time I get a chance to see him once in a while, as we say hello, we talk about old times. So uh, good to see Scott uh, doing well. And I, I had a chance to see uh, St. Cloud this past weekend. Uh, at the uh, Northeast Regional at the Times Union Center. I was very impressed with the way the Huskies played, and especially uh, uh, with what happened to uh, Easton Brzezinski, uh, Brzezinski uh, the injury he suffered in the second period, and uh, how they rallied around him, uh, really dominated that second period against Boston College, and they just, they just looked good. Yeah, they did, and, and uh, best wishes to Easton Brzezinski because uh, that's just it's scary stuff. It's uh, one of the... the, the probably one of the crazier, freakish injuries that I think I've seen in a long time, and, and it's pretty serious, so hopefully he makes a full and complete recovery. Uh, Bruce, where can people find you on Twitter? 
Uh, at Bruce Siski, B-R-U-C-E-C-I-S-K-I-E. Pretty simple. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a very inventive Twitter handle. Think about it. <laughs> well, Bruce. There's not another one like it. Yeah. You're going to get a chance to go to Pittsburgh or you're going to start the call at home? I'm going to call it at home. Um, you know, and, and that's fine. It, look, you know, a year ago right now, I you were all dusting off our resumes and wondering what's going to happen. So I'm grateful that I still have gainful employment. And, uh, and, you know, there's a tournament that these kids get to play in. And if I have to cover from a few hundred miles away, then so be it. Yeah. Well, enjoy calling those games. I and mean, if you another championship, you know, hat trick, and uh, who knows what's going to happen. It'll be a lot of fun to celebrate up there. So uh, good luck to the Bulldogs. Have fun and enjoy it. Thank you, Ken. Appreciate it. All right. That's Bruce Siski. We'll be back to wrap up the podcast in just a moment. Hi, this is Miles Reed, editor of the Daily Gazette. These are difficult times. For most of us, the coronavirus crisis has been a time of unprecedented upheaval, uncertainty, and fear. What does it all mean for our health, our families, our jobs, and our futures? At the Daily Gazette, our journalists have been working tirelessly to answer these questions and many more that have come up during this whole pandemic. How many people have tested positive locally? How many have died? Has anyone died in the local nursing homes? Now, in these difficult times, we're turning to you to support our work by purchasing a subscription or making a donation to help fund our daily efforts. With your support, these are the questions we're continuing to report on. Every day, our reporters and photographers have been working the streets and the phones to answer these critical questions. And every day, they answer the bell with their timely and well-documented reports from the front lines in the region. Behind the scenes, the rest of our editorial team, including our sports writers, copy editors, and digital producers, have been wholly focused on covering the COVID-19 story. During this critical time, everyone here at the paper is working to provide important news and information to keep the community safe and connected. But our ability to serve our community is being threatened by some economic challenges posed by the pandemic. We have stay-at-home orders, business closures, and school shutdowns, and they're contributing to the massive instability in the local business landscape. Despite all of these changes, the Gazette will remain committed to serving the community for many years to come, just as we've been doing unfailingly for the past 125 years. So please go to thedailygazette.com and donate or purchase a subscription to the Daily Gazette. Thank you, be well, and please keep reading. Hi, this is Union College football coach Jeff Behrman. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette, associate sports editor Ken Schott. Welcome back. Before we wrap up the podcast, let's get the NCAA Final Four predictions from my Daily Gazette sports colleagues. Michael Kelly, sports editor at the Daily Gazette, Final Four picks, going with the, uh, the preordained final that is Gonzaga versus Baylor, and uh, I think that Gonzaga completes the perfect season and uh, beats Baylor on Monday night. Hi, I'm Jim Schultz, sports writer for the Daily Gazette. We're talking uh, uh, NCAA basketball. Um, I gotta tell you, it's gonna be fun. I, the final Four is always great. Uh, I'm going to just take Gonzaga 
uh, over UCLA. I love UCLA, you know, first four to final four, but Gonzaga's got it all going on right now. Uh, I think a, a really good game is going to be Baylor and Houston. I'm going to take Baylor. Um, uh, Houston, some of the double seeds and whatnot. In the title game, I'm going to take Gonzaga to finish off an undefeated season. This is Gazette sports writer Adam Schinder. For the final four this weekend, in the first semifinal, I'll take Baylor over Houston. For the second semifinal, Gonzaga over UCLA. And for the national championship, Gonzaga finishes off the undefeated season. Mike McAdam, sports writer here. Uh, my final four picks are Houston Cougars over Baylor in one semifinal. Gonzaga is going to beat uh, UCLA in the other semifinal. I've got Gonzaga running the table, going all the way, winning the national championship. As for my picks, I think we're going to see history. I like Gonzaga and Baylor to get to Monday's championship game. And I think for the first time since 1976, we have an undefeated season. Gonzaga will beat Baylor to win the national championship. But keep checking out DailyGazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on the coronavirus pandemic. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this pandemic. We appreciate the job you're doing in this difficult time. Even though the vaccine for the coronavirus is here, keep wearing the face mask while you're out. Be positive. Stay negative. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I'd like to thank Kevin Kugler, Bill Meltzer, and Bruce Siski for coming on the show. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports. Be smart, stay safe, wear the face mask.